Matthew chapter 5, we're beginning in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We're continuing today in our look at the Sermon on the Mount. And let me just recap real quick where we have been thus far. Um, First of all, it's important for us to understand that Jesus is primarily teaching his disciples here. Uh, We learned at the beginning of this chapter that even though there were perhaps many, many people following Jesus around and surrounding him, he used this opportunity to sit down and begin instructing his immediate followers. Last week, we explored what are called the Beatitudes, which are the blessed are statements that kind of begin this whole thing. They're a sort of preamble of sorts to this sermon. And we said that ultimately, Jesus is seeking to show his disciples that the new life that he is offering makes living in this world difficult. Because as we embrace this, this new kingdom and this new family that we are invited into through Christ, suddenly we begin to see the real brokenness of our world. We begin to see just how messed up all of this is and just how much it's infiltrated our lives, just how much it's shaped and colored who we are and how we think and how we process things and how we make decisions. And, and the more we begin to see the beauty of who Jesus is, the more we begin to wrestle with the place where we are. And and the more we begin to feel like, maybe I don't actually belong here. Maybe this actually isn't my home. One writer says that Jesus' intention in this sermon is to paint a picture of true human flourishing. What does it really mean to thrive? Well, that isn't something, if we believe the gospel, that is only reserved to this world. It's actually something that has an eternal perspective. If we're actually going to flourish or thrive as human beings, then not only do we need Jesus' gospel in this kind of supernatural spiritual sense and in this salvific sense, but we also have to go against our humanness by following him daily. Scripture calls this repentance. We talk about repentance all the time. Jesus talked about repentance all the time. We have to turn from who we were and we have to turn to who he is. Because it's in him, it's in his example that we find 
who he is remaking us to be. And so Jesus is clear, those are all things that are hard, and most people are not going to do them. He uses these metaphors like it's a narrow path or it's a narrow gate. Most people are not going to naturally just choose to walk through those things. They are, however, the path to real life, like true life. Jesus calls it abundant life, and it's life that extends outside of this temporal, broken world. So today what we're going to do is we're going to continue into the main body of this sermon. And and one of the things that you will begin to notice is that we're going to continually be coming up on some of the most famous things that Jesus ever said. Like um, the, and, and what we're going to see also is Jesus says these things in such a, such a way that it makes you kind of go, wait, 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 what? Like he is often intentionally ambiguous, intentionally obtuse. He wants us to chew on his words. He, he wants us to wrestle with them. He wants us to kind of roll them over and over. Most of you know that um, Justin and I uh, work with a ministry called Continuum Network that our church is a part of, and we do a lot of coaching as a part of our work with Continuum. And one of the things that I've learned, coaching is all about asking questions. It's all about asking good questions, getting people to dig deep, getting them to think. And what I've learned is that I always know if I've asked a good question when somebody goes, and kind of like sits back and doesn't immediately answer. It's caused them to think, it's caused them to ponder, it's caused them to chew on what I've asked. So I want to jump into the first half of this text. Jesus makes two statements, which on the surface seem virtually the same, and he's employing these dual metaphors of salt and light. Light is this recurring theme throughout the whole Bible. We see it coming up as a metaphor over and over and over again. And if you just quickly kind of skim through this, you're probably going to come away with the basic notion that Jesus desires for his followers to have some sort of redeeming purpose in the world. Like so That much seems pretty clear. Jesus intends for the people who are aligned with him to have some kind of impact in the world. But we can't simply boil this down into saying something like, God wants you to be a person of influence. I don't think that goes far enough. I don't, I don't think that really gets to the heart of what Jesus is talking about. And I think that when we do that sort of thing, when we just take what Jesus is saying and we try to turn it into like a wise saying or an adage, we actually wind up potentially diminishing the intention of what Jesus was going for. Jesus is not Confucius, right? This is not Jesus sitting on a hillside, just kind of spitting out pithy sayings for us to remember. No, no, no. Jesus has deeper significance and meaning than just a few witty sound bites. There are significant historical implications, Jewish implications, and also like future implications behind what Jesus is saying here. So first of all, This is Jesus calling his church. When Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, this is Jesus calling his church, his body. And when we examine the overarching storyline of the Bible, or or what we could call the meta-narrative of the Bible, one of the things that we see is that throughout, God calls people to specific roles, right? Just think of all of the major biblical characters, 
Abraham, Moses, David. What is God doing there? Abraham was called by God to be the father of many nations. Moses was called to like rescue an entire people group and, and to lead them to the land that God had prepared for them. David was called to restore the fortunes of Israel. The prophets were called to speak the word of the Lord to the people. All of the people that I just mentioned experienced the call of God to step into a specific role in their life like to embrace something that God had for them. And God says, you, you go do that. You, this is what I created you for. You, this is how I've gifted and talented you and impassioned you. This is what I have for you. And that, believer, is not just for specific people. It's for all who call upon the name of Christ. All are called and all are sent with the gospel. We can't bifurcate this and say that there are some Christians who are called and sent by God and others who are not. That's completely untrue. Yet many of us have not embraced what God has for us, or we only know it in part. This is Jesus calling his church. In the same way that he sent Abraham, Moses, the prophets, so on and so forth, the story of the New Testament is God calling and empowering and sending his church. So who is the church? Well, as I've already said, it's not just people who attend religious events. There are many, many people who do that. Who is the church? It's, it's those who have faith in Christ. And if that is you, then you have been called into the ranks of Abraham and Moses and the prophets. Which is astounding so Jesus is not just, you know, throwing out some benign platitudes here. He is calling his disciples with purpose. He's sending them out into the world to be people of impact, not in a vague sense, but people of gospel impact. He's sending them out in the world to be people who, because of their kingdom-centeredness, are changing things are changing things in a way that reflects the kingdom of God and hopefully is pointing people towards the truth of who Christ is and what he's done. Now, what's interesting to me here is that Jesus doesn't say, I am the salt of the earth, even though he is, right? Even though our saltiness, we're picking up from him, right? It's, it's our contact with him that ultimately is giving us the ability to do what he has sent us to do. Well, Another famous thing that Jesus says is that if you abide in me, I will abide in you. And he goes on to say that anyone who abides in the vine will bear good fruit, but anybody who doesn't won't, right? So, so there's an if-then thing going on there, right? If you really want to bear fruit in your life, if you want to do the stuff that God has called you to do, you can only do it in Christ, you can only do it if you are truly abiding, which means resting in the person and work of Jesus. But he doesn't say, I am the salt of the earth. He says, you are the salt. And I think in that he is anticipating the mission that he is ultimately sending his followers on, which is the mission to go and make more disciples. Now, this doesn't sound strange at all to our Western, culturally Christian ears, but for Jesus' Jewish hearers, 
it would have been astounding, I think, because he's not saying the priests are the salt of the earth, is he? He's not saying the temple is the salt of the earth. He's not even saying the Torah, which are the first five books of the Bible, the books of the law. He's not even saying that that is the salt of the earth. He's telling these common everyday guys, fishermen, many of them, you, even though you may not be as educated as some other people, maybe not a part of the elite religious groups that some other people are a part of, but you, because of your relationship to me, are the salt of the earth. Normal everyday people. You know, the disciples were as normal everyday people as anyone could be. So it would have been potentially shocking to many of his hearers, and we need to maybe be a little bit careful right here because we are often quick to want to abdicate our responsibility of being salt and light, but the onus is on you and it is on me. And here's here's what I mean when I say that. Um, The Bible is not the light of the world. The Bible itself is not the salt of the earth. You are. You know, I I think for a lot of people, even many believing Christians, if you were to ask them, does the Bible say that it's the light of the world? I think a lot of people would say, yeah, of course. Yeah, man, the Bible is central. The Bible is the most important thing in the world. And of course, uh, oh my gosh, it's, it's huge. But what Jesus is getting at here is, no, 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 no. I am the source of all of this right? You will not produce fruit if you are not in me. The saltiness that you are taking on is coming from me. I'm empowering you with the person of God, the Holy Spirit, which will ultimately come to them. In our world today, we think maybe other things will do the work for us. Maybe pastors and preachers are the light of the world, but no, no, no. It's not just them. The church is. We are. Maybe we think the local church organization, through, through doing good work and through caring for the poor and doing work of justice, that, that somehow that's going to be the light of the world. But, but no, no, no. It's the people who are inside those local church organizations who are the light of the world. It's, it's, it's us. And, and so we can't abdicate our obedience. We can't just give it to something else, even if that something else is incredibly good. Because Jesus has sent us. So the metaphor is clear to me. If if the world is going to be salted and lit, it will be because true disciples of Christ have embraced his mission to go and make disciples. And there are a variety of means through through which they can engage that mission. But unless we respond to it, unless we say yes to what Jesus has sent us to do, then we are being disobedient. You guys following me this morning? Is this making sense? Now, Jesus does this interesting thing when he's speaking, and he's, he's able to anticipate what other people are thinking, how other people are responding to his words, and, and he often kind of sculpts his argument based on this knowledge of what people are thinking or how people are responding. And so he turns at this point, verse 17, and says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So when you're a Jewish fisherman listening to Jesus tell you that you are somehow the light of the world, your natural inclination would be to say something like, but what about the prophets? What about the prophets? Aren't the prophets the ones who point us to God? Right? Aren't the prophets the one the ones who have delivered the word of the Lord? Aren't they, in a sense, the light of the world? Or what about the law itself? Like, isn't that part of the intention of the law? Wasn't that why God gave the law? Why, wasn't it why he handed it down through Moses? Isn't the law like at the core of everything it means to be Jewish, to follow God? Doesn't the law show us how we are to live and who we are? So Jesus anticipates this question, and, and yet his answer is even more confounding. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, someone that I think most Americans view as having been especially righteous was Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa is constantly held up, um, and, and, and why not? Uh, life devoted to God, uh, devoted to celibacy, moved to the slums of Calcutta, India, uh, spent most of her life in abject poverty, caring for the sick and the dying. We, we look at what she did, and we look at the outward cause, and, and most of us go, wow, right? Like, I've read books about people who have um, just traveled over there for brief periods of time to spend a summer working with her um, when she was alive or, you know, kind of becoming a part of her community. And, and, and it's astounding to me. It's, it's not something I would ever just choose to do, right? It's not something I would ever just want to do, to just go spend day after day after day in poverty with people who are literally, literally dying, and yet that's what she did. And I think so many people look at that and go, man, that is what righteousness looks like. Well, for Jesus's followers, for many of them, what righteousness looked like was the Pharisees. These were the guys who had made a significant commitment in following the Lord. They were the ones who were truly taking the law seriously. They were the ones who were trying to follow it as closely as possible. We talk about the Pharisees today with hindsight. We kind of look at them as being the bad guys here in the story of the Gospels. But for Jesus' hearers, many of whom were following him, they in general looked at the Pharisees as being people who were incredibly devout. And they were incredibly conservative in their faith. If anybody loves the Lord, it's the guy who's willing to give up this and this and this and this to follow Jesus. It was a significant commitment. And so to then tell people, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, somehow your righteousness has to exceed that of Mother Teresa, right? Your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees. It would have been hard to swallow. Scholar and author Dr. Scott McKnight says that this text 
is the most significant passage in the entire Bible on how to read the Bible. Let me say that again. He says this is the most significant passage in the entire Bible on how to read the Bible. You know, there are a lot of different ways that people read the Bible. Some people read it historically, just kind of going back through what's the, what's the story arc here, what's happening, connecting it to actual moments in history. There are people who read the Bible informationally. There are people who read the Bible devotionally and on and on and on. In Jesus's day, however, people were reading only Genesis to Malachi. They were only reading what we would know as the Old Testament. That's all there was at that point. This is what Jesus is referring to when he talks about the law and the prophets. He's talking about the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible. And so when Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill it, what he was essentially saying to his listeners was, I haven't come to abolish the Bible, the Scriptures, I have come to fulfill the Scriptures. And so if that is true, if that is true, then the whole of the Old Testament must be read in light of Christ. We said, I think, last week there's this interesting encounter after Jesus has been resurrected where he meets these guys on the road to a place called Emmaus. And one of the things that he does for them, they don't recognize who it is, they don't know that it's Jesus, but one of the things that he does is it says he began to unpack the law and the prophets. He began to unpack the Old Testament scriptures, and he began to show people where the Christ was seen and all of those things. So we have to read the Old Testament in the light of who Jesus is. That's why he says this is the most significant passage in the entire Bible on how to read the Bible. So we have to read it in that way. But second, as we get deeper into this sermon, we encounter the, you've heard it said, but I tell you statements of Jesus. That's kind of the framework that he's working with. And he's speaking to us not as an interpreter of the Old Testament, right? If we read the Old Testament today and go, here's what, here's what I think it's saying, then what we're ultimately trying to do is interpret the Old Testament. Jesus is not speaking as an interpreter of the Old Testament. He is speaking to us as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And so when he says something later on, when he says something like, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. When he says things like that, he isn't saying, here's what it was, and now I'm recontextualizing it, or here's what it was, and now I'm changing it. Jesus is saying, you've heard it said, but that wasn't right. That was not the right understanding. Let me tell you what the truth is. Let me tell you what is right. And so if you're a Jew and you buy that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things, then you may, if, you, yeah, if you've bought into all of that, you may be tempted to like throw away the law. But Jesus says you can't do that either. It isn't abolished. It isn't done away with. And perhaps it's more in effect now than it's ever been. But now we view it through the lens of Christ. Not through the lens of rigid human effort. And as we view the law through the lens of Christ, we come to see that he has fulfilled it on our behalf. He has done what none of us were capable of doing. If you go to the fair, there's always this game at the fair called the high striker. It's, it's that thing where you take the sledgehammer and you have to 
hit it and the thing goes up. And if you're, if you're really strong like me, you ring the bell every time, right? Through the lens of the gospel, it, it's, like, it's like everybody was trying to ring the bell and no one could. And then Jesus comes along and does it with no effort whatsoever. And he takes the, the, the gigantic teddy bear that he just won and he hands it to you as if you did it. But it was all him. It was his righteousness. It was his effort. And yet what he does is he takes his righteousness and his sacrifice and he imputes it to us. He gives it to us. He lays it on top of us. And when God looks at us, that is what he sees as if we did that, but we didn't. There's no way we could have. Even as as much as we tried, even as, as righteous as we could be, we couldn't in any way measure up. And so when Jesus says things like, take on my yoke and it's, it's light, it's like he's saddling you with this like, gigantic teddy bear that he just won. And sure, as you did it, but he did it. Does that make sense? I think this truth is at the heart of the gospel. Through Christ, through his sacrifice, you are given his righteousness. It's a free gift. As a result, your righteousness now exceeds even the greatest human effort in the eyes of God. Through Christ, our righteousness can exceed that of the Pharisees. Even though on our own, there's no way. So seeing the law and the prophets through the lens of Jesus, it doesn't abolish them, but it does clearly change the way that we view them. So for the Pharisees, the law was not simply a guiding force. It was their identity. But the law is not our identity, right? Jesus is. Our identity is to be found squarely in the person of Christ. And I think the Apostle Paul is really helpful here. Um, Paul was the only apostle who had also been a Pharisee, but not just any Pharisee. Paul was like a Pharisee among Pharisees. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was kind of the ruling council within the temple. Uh, We also learn uh, that he had studied under the elder Gamaliel, which was, I mean, this was like kind of an elite school for people who would be Pharisees. And so this is someone whose life had revolved around rigid observance of the law. And early on, when we first meet Paul, that's still the mode that he's in. His identity is not simply as a Jew, but his identity is is as a Pharisee, right? And so he's seeking to root out all of these people that he believes to be sectarian heretics, these people who are following Jesus. Paul is seeking to root them out and kill them. But then he encounters Jesus. And here's what he writes later, 1 Corinthians 9. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, 
that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may, that I may share with them in its blessings." The idea of becoming all things to all people is the complete antithesis of what it means to be a Pharisee, right? That would have been offensive and astounding to Pharisees because to be a Pharisee was largely defined by who you separated yourself from. It was defined by who you didn't associate with. We do the same thing in American Christianity today, by the way. We take a lot of pride in who we separate ourselves from as if that somehow makes us more righteous or holy. And we're so quick to forget that so often these are the people we've been sent to by Jesus. So Paul's point in all of this is that my primary goal is to share in the blessings of the gospel. It has so changed my life. It has so impacted my life. I am now such a different person that my primary goal is to go, hey, what do you need me to be? And I'll be it just so that you can experience what I've experienced because it's that astounding. It's that transformational. It called him to abandon human effort as a way of being made righteous, and at the same time, he embraced human effort as a way of glorifying God. He goes on to say, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. So Paul says, my righteousness is not based on my effort, but now, now that I've seen who Christ is, now that the gospel has invaded and infiltrated my life, now that I'm different, what I recognize is that I am a sent one. In the same way that the Father sent Jesus, I am also sent. And so I'm not just going to sit around and act like that's not a real thing. I'm not just going to sit around and pretend that someone else is going to do that. Because honestly, if that's what I'm doing, then I, don't, I, don't, I haven't got it. I've missed it somehow. Like if this is real, if this is true, if this has really changed me, then my desire, the thing overflowing out of me should be to want to share in the blessings of the gospel with as many people as possible. I want you to get it. What do you need me to be so that so that that'll be easier for you. So what Paul's saying here, when you consider who he was, is astounding. Like this is like gospel-centered, Holy Spirit transformation type stuff. So because Jesus has fulfilled the law, because he has given us his righteousness to me and to you, we don't just sit back and relax we don't say, oh, God's just going to do his work. Oh, yeah, he's going to do his work. But recognize that one of God's primary intentions is for his church 
to go with the gospel, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to make disciples of all peoples, of all lands. Paul says you must discipline your life. And you're doing it in obedience to Christ for the good of others. If your perspective is, you know, it's just, it's just Jesus and me, and, and I'm good. You're missing it. If it's just God's going to do his work, he doesn't need me. You're missing it. And so when we follow him in obedience, when we step out, when we embrace the calling that he has placed on us, when we begin to remove, to repent, to turn from the identity that we have had and from the sin that we've had and from the, the, the way that the brokenness of our world has shaped us, when we begin to turn from all of that and turn to him and find our righteousness in him and our hope in him and our joy in him and our identity in him, we, we change we become different people. The things we once wanted, we don't want anymore. He fills us with new desires and new love for others. And all of this is so that other people might look into your life and not just hear the gospel, but might also see the gospel as well. My prayer for us, guys, is that we would be running this race in such a way that we also would be seeking to discipline ourselves under the guidance and leadership of Jesus and his spirit so that we would not be disqualified from this work in any way. So, so that the words that we're saying would be matched by the posture of our lives. Because if the words that we're saying don't match what people see in our lives, our words are rendered null and void. It doesn't matter if you say that Jesus is Lord if your life says, I am Lord. Or money is Lord. Or stuff is Lord. Or career is Lord. Or my kids are Lord. He is Lord. And when he truly is, the sinner, the thing with which your life orients around and revolves around, you better believe that you become a city on a hill because you're going to stand out like a sore thumb. You're not going to look like anything, like anybody else. You're going to look upside down, and there are going to be a lot of people who see it and don't want it. Jesus tells us that that will be the case. But there are many, 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 many people who are hungry for it. They just don't know what it is until they see it, until they experience it, until they taste it, until they hear it. That is who we're called to be, flavoring the world, salting the world, making it better, all in the name of Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, you are good. You are faithful. You have done a miraculous and incredible thing through giving your life as a sacrifice for mine. We cannot thank you enough. We cannot serve you enough. We cannot be obedient enough to in any way justify what you have done for us. And Father, I believe that your desire would be that we, that we be relieved of that burden. That what you have done is so astounding 
And our chance of ever aspiring to it is so, is so invisible, Father, that we would then be freed to just rest in it. That we would be freed to be people who aren't trying to earn anything or produce anything but simply people who are seeking to rest in you, completely recognizing that when we rest in you, you will do the work of producing. And when we run off ahead of you, or when we don't consult you, or when we don't care what your actual will is, you tell us that that will never bear real fruit. Father, this morning, would you guide us as we continually seek to repent? Not only to confess our sins, Father, but to to turn from them and to turn to you and to rest in you. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name. Amen.